Welcome to another episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Saigon podcast. My name's Neil Mackay and I'm your host as always. Today I have a very exciting guest. This guest is the first listener-suggested guest. So a big shout out to Brandon Coleman, who if you remember from episode one with JK Hobson, he's JK's canary in the coal mine. Brandon went back to the US, he was a trailblazer for expats, he went back in the Trump era to check it out and um, to see what it was like and his message back to JK was uh, don't leave. Do not come back. Do not come back, that's right. So I've been suggesting to people since the beginning, you know, if, you, if there's anybody that you want to listen to that's uh, in Saigon please send me a message and you can still do that 7millionbikes at gmail.com or on Facebook but yeah a few weeks ago I got an email from Brandon who's been listening into every episode and he said you know I want you to interview Mintum thank you very much for joining me today on this episode thank you for having me Neil you're, you're very very welcome so Mintum is um, American but she's a Viet Q born of Vietnamese parents who left Saigon after the end of the, the Vietnamese war or the American war depending on which way you want to call it. And uh, she has then come back to Vietnam to explore a bit more of her heritage and her background, reconnect with her, her history, and also has, uh, along the way, created a closed-door restaurant called Saiganita, which is a fusion of Mexican and Vietnamese food, which I've yet to try, but I'm very excited to try it. So thank you very much. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Neil. Thank you. So you would be described then as a Viet Q, is that right? Yes, exactly. So a Viet Q, there's a couple of definitions about what a Viet Q is. Some people say a Viet Q would be someone who is born in Vietnam and maybe went overseas to study like your past guest Kim did and then returned back to Vietnam. Uh, and some people describe a Viet Q as anyone who is of Vietnamese blood but living overseas. Uh, and so because I wasn't born in Vietnam, I choose to accept the larger definition of a Viet Q being anyone who is of Vietnamese descent living overseas um, and they could be living overseas or they could have returned as well. Thanks for clearing that up because yeah, I hear so many different definitions of it or I'll maybe call someone a Viet Q and they're like, no, no, they're not Viet Q and I'm like, oh. Yeah, I don't know. And it used to have a bad connotation as well because VQs used to be tied with these people who came in probably, I would say, like 1990s, early 2000, where they probably left because of the war and they came back and they're like, look at all this money and they're just showing off or acting really badly, I guess, in Vietnam. So they ha so being called a VQ used to be a derogatory term. But I'd like to think that my generation of Vietcus who are coming now, people who were born overseas and were coming just to get to know Vietnam and we're not coming with a sense of entitlement and we're not coming like, oh, we know how to do things better because we were born in the West or we're not saying like we're better than anyone because we had spent time in the West. It's more like we're just here. We happen, we're Vietnamese. We happen to be born overseas and we're just trying to get to know this country better. Now that's really interesting because I asked Kim about this and on an upcoming episode with Daniel Duan who's and he called himself a VQ at one point but he'd studied overseas for six years and then come back and that I remember that kind of confused me I was like oh you're describing yourself as VQ I didn't think that was a description but what I asked both of them was I remember when I first got here I read 
an article about how returning Vietnamese were treated differently because of what you said there, because of entitlement, because mm-hmm. the people perceived you as being entitled and coming back and wanting to do things better and different. Mm-hmm. And so um, they not really felt that too much. But so have you felt that then coming back as a, as a VQ who was born overseas? I definitely feel like I have privileges that I wouldn't have had if I were born in Vietnam and never studied overseas or never spent time overseas. Uh, I think it's it's something that I struggle with. Like I have this guilt with because it's not it's nothing I did. You know, like my parents, my dad got on a boat. I didn't do any of that. But yet I have like all these rewards from them living overseas and from myself getting educated in the West and growing up in the West. Uh, so I think there are distinct advantages, especially because when I first moved to Vietnam, I was working for an international company. It was based out of Australia, but the main office was in Singapore. And I felt like because I was that bridge between East and West, it allowed me to get a much higher position or command a lot more respect than if I were just born in Vietnam or if I were just American with no Vietnamese background. So I have been able to play like best of both worlds with my identity. And I've asked this to a lot of people. How's your Vietnamese? My Vietnamese, uh, when, when I was growing up, my parents put me through Vietnamese school at the temple like every Sunday. But I remember after like three years of doing Vietnamese school, I told my mom like, this is useless. I'm never going to learn Vietnamese. Like... And she told me, when you grow up, you're really going to regret this. And I told her, I will never regret this because this is a useless language that I will never put into practice. And here I am living in Vietnam. So, yeah, so I came with not a great ability to speak Vietnamese because my parents, they would speak Vietnamese to me at home. But uh, they were also college educated in America, so they understood English. So my sisters and I always replied to them in English. So listening-wise, we were pretty fluent when it comes to conversational listening. But when I speak Vietnamese, I have a terrible American accent. And so a lot of times when I talk to my grab drivers, they assume I'm a foreigner. Or if I ever hear any Vietnamese person saying like, your Vietnamese is so good. I'm like, they know, they think I'm Filipino. They think I'm Indonesian. There's no, there's no way someone would, you know, if you thought someone was a native Vietnamese speaker, you wouldn't tell them like, your Vietnamese is so good. Or no one would tell you, Neil, your English is so good. I'm, impressed Wait, but people have told me that before because they think i don't speak english (laughs) (laughs) yeah so maybe maybe you relate to it but i mean your english is also better than my vietnamese so uh so in terms of my vietnamese since coming here i've taken a lot of vietnamese lessons my mom was right uh and i've just Wait, say that again louder so your mom can hear uh, my mom was right vietnamese was a useful language to learn uh i've paid for out of my own pocket now for so many hours of Vietnamese lessons um, and I try all the time like now I'm at the point where I can make I can have friendships with people using just Vietnamese and it's pretty shallow I I mean it's not like the deepest of conversations Um, I can go to I recently got LASIK I went to the doctor everything was done in Vietnamese so I, I can like navigate not well like I think everyone thought I was mentally slow, but I at least could navigate. I got LASIK. I can see now. So it was good enough to get that to happen. 
Now this reminds me of um, one of my favourite stories um, since I've been in Vietnam. So when I first got here, uh, we were doing the, we being my wife and I, we were doing the CELTA to learn how to teach English. And there was a girl on our course who we still loved a bit and we haven't seen her in ages, Mai, who was VQ from Australia. Similar story, parents were from Vietnam, lived all her life in Australia and she could speak a little bit of Vietnamese. And she was, I think more than a little bit, sorry, I think she can speak Vietnamese quite well. And uh, she was telling us when she first came back here to do the CELTA, she was in a taxi and she was talking to the driver in Vietnamese. He's like, oh my God, in Vietnamese, oh my God, your Vietnamese is so good. She's like, oh, thank you very much. He's like, well, you know, my parents are from Saigon. And he turned around and he looked and he went, your Vietnamese is so shit. Yeah, that has definitely happened to me before. I've had people say like, you were trying to speak Vietnamese. I didn't know if you were speaking Vietnamese or you were speaking English, like it's so shit. Uh, like, and then I would say things like, yeah, my parents are pretty sad. I didn't keep up with it. And they're like, they should be sad. Like they should be ashamed of where your Vietnamese is at. But I've had, I've also had people who are more polite about it as well. And I think similar to something you said in a past episode, there are just some things that I've always said it that way at home. My parents are also from the central area, so they have a Hoya accent. So it's very different than the Saigon accent as well. And there are just some ways we phrase things. Also, my parents' vocabulary hasn't been updated since 1975, so I have like the outdated version of Vietnamese. And there are things where I'm like, I've said it this way my entire life. Why do they not understand me? Like, I am 100% confident I am saying this Vietnamese word right. But there are so many other factors going into like why people don't understand me. But the biggest part is my American accent. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a really interesting point about kind of the language being frozen in time almost, right? So like mm -hmm. they left in what, 1975? Yeah. yeah. And so their language has been frozen since then, right? Like that, yeah. I never really thought about language as being like that. Exactly. And you think about like how our language has evolved, like selfie, things like that. Like for example, my parents, when describing a grocery store, like the like a Vinmart, the kind you go in, there's air conditioning and whatever, they still use the word job, which is the word for outdoor market. And it makes sense because those kinds of indoor air conditioned markets didn't exist when they were here in Vietnam. Uh, as well as our word for, the word for airport has apparently changed. So then whenever my parents come here, they're like, let's go to the Fichung. And I'm like, Songbai, please don't embarrass me <laughs> with your outdated Vietnamese. <laughs> like, let's get things up to speed. Uh, and then for my dad as well, like sometimes he'll use, you know, over time things become more PC, certain things become okay and less okay. And so my dad will use like the less PC way to say Chinese people when talking in public and I just have to like nudge him and be like, we're not allowed to say yeah. that word. I mean, anymore. that would be like, say like my grandpa would maybe, maybe not my grandpa, but a person of his generation would say like an Oriental. Exactly. Something like exactly. that. Like, you'd be like, grandpa, no, we don't. Yeah, do exactly. It's not exactly racist, but yeah. it's not comfortable yeah. hearing it either. Sure. It's really similar to, to Gaelic, which is the, the, the language of Scotland, which is, mm -hmm. I think was kind of dying out, but they're bringing it back now. And um, when I went back, I went up to the Isle of Skye where it's, it's spoken more predominantly. And I was talking to my friend who could speak Gaelic and she was saying similar things. She's like, it's just such a pointless language. She's like, because it's mod, they don't replace words. So she's like things like computer or cell phone, like there's not a new word in Gaelic for it. So more and more you'll hear Gaelic being spoken and I don't know how to speak it, but it, it kind of sounds like this. It'll be like, computer, cell phone. Like it's, she's like, so eventually like all the words will be replaced. So why are we trying to teach kids Gaelic when it's like a dead language almost? I found that quite interesting as well. 
interesting to know that it's similar in Vietnamese as well. And so where are you from in America then? I'm from Texas, born and raised. And is that where your parents moved to in 75? Yes, uh, my mom moved straight to Houston. My dad, he was at a refugee camp in Guam and was par- uh, eventually sponsored to come over to California. And then he went to school in Oregon and whatever. He eventually made his way over to Texas, where my parents then met. And because of the big Vietnamese population in Texas, you're from Houston, right? Yes, exactly. Houston has a huge Vietnamese population. Houston's actually, this is something I'm always proud about Houston, so I'm going to plug it in. Uh, Houston is actually the most diverse city in the U.S. I know New Yorkers always think that. New York is so diverse. But Houston actually has uh, the largest amount of, I guess, a non-white population or a population that's, uh, whose parents were born overseas or the population was born overseas. And so it was a very diverse place with Vietnamese being a huge part of that. Uh, in Texas, actually, the third most spoken language after Spanish is Vietnamese. So. And so why is Houston so diverse then? I think part of it, well, my mom likes to say a lot of Vietnamese people move to Houston because the climate's very similar, which is actually why it was easy for me to move to Saigon. I used to live in New York, actually, but the climate really got to me. It was way too cold for way too long. So I figured, I then moved to Southeast Asia, to Singapore and then Vietnam. But for me, it helps that I was moving to a climate that I grew up in. So your parents, they are originally from the central region of Vietnam? Exactly, yeah. So they're actually from Dalak. Like, they both grew up in Dalak, but originally their family was from Hue. There was a mass exodus of Hue people to Dalak, and so they were a part of it. And they kept their accent because... I guess they only hung out with white people, kind of like when I lived in New York, I only hung out with Texans. I don't know, so. And what, so on the side of the wall, because obviously it's north-east-south is the black and white version of it, which I'm sure there's heaps of grey in there, mm-hmm. but then they're from the central area, so where did they fit in with that? They definitely fit in with the south. Part. Oh, really? Yeah. And is that was that common in that region? I think so. I'm not exactly sure. I do know... So I'm basing it on the population of Vietnamese people around me growing up because I figured you wouldn't flee the country if your side won, so to speak. And so in Houston, there were a lot of, I did know a lot of people growing up who were from the Hue area and I mean, who have the Hue accent and from the central area. That's probably because they're also my family members. But we, in terms of food, we had a good representation of central and southern food and not so much northern I had never, until I was maybe like 28 and in Singapore, I had never met anyone with a northern accent in my life. It was something I'd only seen on TV or heard on the radio possibly, but it was never something I actually encountered. And I never encountered any northern food or knew anything about their culture until I moved here. Um, do you want to explain what's the difference between the food in the north, the central and the south? Yeah. So they like to break it up into those three areas and thinking of them as having three different tastes. So the South is considered to have a very sweet flavor profile, which I'm sure you realized when you lived here, when you started living here. Uh, I didn't realize too recently, actually, I think because I just get so used to it. But there was a, one of my colleagues had moved down here from Hanoi and we went out for hot pot for lunch and he couldn't eat it and they were all speaking in Vietnamese and then translated to me and they said, oh no, he thinks it's too sweet. 
And I was like, oh, it's just, it's soup. Like it didn't taste sweet. But then after he said that, I took a sip and I was like, oh, yeah, this has sugar in it. Like this is sweet. Exactly. It's crazy. It wasn't until I started cooking more Vietnamese food that I realized when making soup, they actually put sugar in it. And I'm like, I never, you know, like whenever I make soup on the regular, like black bean soup or whatever, like soups that I'm, that I used to grow up making, like I never put in sugar before. And so that was something new. And then also coming here, I realized, and it makes sense, a lot more coconut products are used because of benche and they just have more coconut milk and coconut products. So that's also a sweet thing. Uh, Central is known for having more spicy foods, although spicy and salty. And so I, the other interesting about Hue is it has the imperial background. So it has a lot more of those small cakes like Ban bao, ban num, ban boklok, whatever, uh, that are more difficult to make. And then in the north, their flavor profile, I guess, is more, for lack of a better word, bland. I don't. Know. <laughs> oh, really? I don't. I don't know. I know. I, know I think there was those. More salty in I think those are fighting words. Uh, yeah, and maybe like a bit more salty. But from what I hear, they're more likely to use MSG versus sugar. They wouldn't use sugar in what they were make. What they're making. Uh, again, this is what I've heard. I haven't had that much experience cooking in the north or cooking with northern foods. Northern is maybe more salty or more bland. I guess pure. We can say pure. Uh, and the central is more spicy and the south is more sweet. And uh, how's your mom's cooking? My mom is actually not a great cook. Uh, yeah, so this is why I don't want her to listen to this <laughs> podcast. Uh, my mom is... Bless her heart. I mean, she was a full-time computer programmer, and so she studied computer science. And I feel like if she was a man, we would never... And my dad was also a computer programmer, so like he was not expected to cook all the time. And so, whereas she, that expectation is on her. So I, I forgive her. Over time, I have forgiven her for not being a great cook. Is that, now you mention that though, is that a very sexist question by me inadvertently? Like, I'm, I'm, why did I not ask? I was thinking in my head, like, I was going to say, is your dad a good cook? But it is, you know, the, the automatic thought goes to the female. Yeah, is that exactly. Is question then? Uh, I guess. <laughs> I, guess. Uh, I think it's also, in, it's just indicative of how, I think we as a culture, both in Vietnamese culture, as well as the Western cultures I've grown up, is what we would assume. Like, people talk about mom's cooking. People talk about grandma's cooking. No one talks about... Dad's cooking unless it's grilling or doing anything with meats. No one talks about grandpa's secret pie recipe. Uh, so but do you think that has maybe changed for the next generation? Because maybe like if those podcast was in 30 years time, people would maybe be like, oh, was your dad a good cook? Because, you know, men are associated with cooking. Gordon Ramsay, Jamie Oliver. Whoever, exactly. You know? Yeah. Like maybe it's just more of it's maybe I'm hoping it's not a sexist question. I'm just more asking a question because generationally we expect yeah that it's gonna be hopefully, the woman that cook. yeah hopefully mm. in the future they'll ask were any of your parents a good cook yeah or chef? that's what i should have yeah asked. no I, I mean asked. it's it's something that you see in the cooking world men are chefs women are cooks um which is unfortunate but i think for me i felt like when i was in college so in college i actually couldn't cook that well either but my guy friends would be able to cook really well and i just felt like oh maybe this is indicative of the time like women are feeling like 
we don't need to cook. Like, you know, we're going to get all these jobs and like we don't want our role to be as cooks anymore. And so maybe guys have had to pick up the slack and that a guy who can cook is more valued now that women can't cook. That was a hypothesis I had. Since then, I've learned how to cook and I haven't thought back about it. So did your parents tell you much about what it was like, like during the war or that transition from moving to America? It's something we've not talked about too much on the podcast. And it's something I'm not wanting to focus massively on because I think Vietnam is massively past that. And I really thought it was interesting when JK talked about, you know, especially in America, people have never really disassociated Vietnam with the war. So I don't want to get into that too much, but just what was that like? Yeah, exactly. And I think actually for Vietnamese Americans or Viet Qs, the ones who are living overseas, that they're pretty fixated on the war still because it was such a big part of their lives and it changed everything. Whereas in Vietnam, I think you can move past. You have so many more associations with Vietnam. You have so many more memories and there are so many non-related war things to associate with this country. Whereas for my parents' generation, all they associate with this country is war before the war, which was not great famine time, and after the war, which was also not great famine time. Uh, and then so that's why I think for Vietnamese relatives who are of my parents' generation overseas, it's very hard for them to accept that their children are coming back to Vietnam because they're like, why would you go back to this awful country? All I remember about it are awful, awful things. And so that's why for me, it's like, I really like it when my parents, so both my parents have visited since I've moved here. And it's really helpful for me to show them my apartment, like the hospital that's across the street from me that has like a two-piece orchestra. Like I've never been to a hospital that nice in America. So I just want them to see like, this is Vietnam now, it's changing. And like, because you went overseas, I can have this opportunity. So it's not like you left for no reason, but there are a lot of opportunities here. Uh, in regards to whether my parents talked about Vietnam beforehand, uh, they would say, they would say some things, but it, like, I remember I really wanted to know more about my parents' childhood, and I asked my dad, like, what's your favorite memory as a child? And he said, one day I saw someone shoot a dog, and that was my best memory. And so, <laughs> he wasn't very forthcoming, but I think it, as he's been growing older, uh, he's been a lot more open and talking about things a lot more. And I'm seeing that, or I'm hearing those anecdotes about the older generation that they were really closed off, maybe because we were too young or maybe because they were still getting over it. But now in their older age, maybe they realize that unless they tell their, these stories, no one's gonna hear them. They're starting to open up and we're starting to get a lot more of these like beautiful and heartbreaking stories come out of it. That's really interesting because, yeah, I remember asking a friend about it, about a Vietnamese friend, and they were like, yeah, no, my parents have never talked about it. Like, I, I don't know anything from yeah. back then. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, it just seems like something that would be something growing up that would be talked about. Yeah, exactly. And I recently, last weekend, I went back to Delac with my mom. So we were in her hometown and I would try to point things out like, do you remember this? What did you do here? And it was like, it was really fuzzy. And they were just like, was it like we went to visit what would have been her old house but then now it's like covered up by these like Ben sale shops and you can barely see it and like things have changed so much and so i think like any memories she does have is now like kind of being paved away the same way like the whole city has been paved away and changed and so tell us more about that trip because you went back to visit your 
maternal grandfather yes right? yeah. yeah so i went to visit my maternal grandfather because he wasn't in yatjang uh also another central city because uh, he wasn't feeling well and part of the benefits of me moving here is that i could be closer to him so my maternal grandfather had actually he was in america when i was younger so throughout my childhood i had him in america and then he decided when it was time to retire to retire in vietnam because the life of a retired person in Vietnam is way better than life of a retired person in America where they would like put you in a nursing home and just forget about you. But whereas when he was in Vietnam, he could like go swimming at the beach every day and have fruit trees and be in a country where everyone understands him. And so, so then he moved to retire in Vietnam and then I moved to Vietnam almost two years ago and I moved to Asia about three years ago. So during that time period, I've been able to visit him a lot. He was falling ill, so I visited him. And I was able to, I, I was able to spend his last few days with him, which was really fortunate. Um, I was even able to record him like saying a message to our family, which was quite nice. Uh, and yeah, and then so it was very fortunate that I could be there at the time. And then after that, he passed and my mom and my uncle flew in. And then I got to spend the next couple weeks with my mom as well um, around Delac, Nyajang, and Saigon. And so that was a good experience to... It was only her third time back to Vietnam since she immigrated. And so it was good to be with her and to show her the parts of Vietnam that I knew or just have memories here with her that weren't associated with like awful things, I guess. So what was it like for your parents then um, in America being immigrants or mm -hmm. refugees would be the right term? And uh, what was it like being refugees and new immigrants in America? Yeah, I think for my parents, something that I only thought about recently or realized recently is that all the only friends I've seen them hang out with and they were pretty social, like we always had parties and stuff and saw a lot of people, but everyone was Vietnamese. And I realized that I've never seen them have a friendship that was with someone who is not Vietnamese. And I'm sure like my dad, when he goes to work or my mom, when she goes to work has like office workers or like other coworkers that they're on good terms with or acquaintances, but I've never seen a non-Vietnamese person really come over to our house and hang out. So I guess in that way, because we had such a large Vietnamese community, they were able, we were able to get all the Vietnamese food. So it didn't matter that my mom was a bad cook because <laughs> we could go, uh, we got all our ingredients uh, at the Vietnamese part of town. We had the restaurants. Growing up, I felt like I was American, quote unquote, on the weekdays and Vietnamese on the weekends and that I went to school, I just try to integrate as much as possible, speak English, like learn what Pop-Tarts and fruit roll-ups were, things like that. Like I remember coming home to my mom one day and I'm like, I tried this bread thing at school and then there was like tomato sauce and it was cheesy and she's like, you tried pizza. And I was like, wow, pizza is what I tried today. And so, yeah, so then it was like, for me, those weekdays were just like a quick ramp up. I also had to take ESL, English as a second language, until I was eight. Uh, my first language was actually Vietnamese, which is terrible considering how terrible my Vietnamese is now. Um, but I took ESL for quite a while, and in those classes, I was exposed to lots of American snacks. And But then on the weekends, I was totally Vietnamese. Like my doctor, my dentist, my hair cutter, everyone in my life as an adult was Vietnamese. And when I went to school, I just tried to like 
forget that part because no one else lived that experience. So I'm like, okay, that's like my fake life and I have my real life here at school. And whatever they talk about at school, like, oh, yes, our Thanksgiving meal of turkey and mashed potato. I'm like, yeah, sure. Mine's not fried rice, you know? And so what was that like then being having that almost dual life? Yeah, I guess I didn't. Maybe I just didn't think about it because I was so young and like didn't realize how. I mean, I must have known it wasn't normal if I was trying to like separate the two. But it wasn't until I read um, Eddie Huang's book, Fresh Off the Boat, and I read about his experiences being a Chinese, Taiwanese American growing up in Florida. And for the first time, I felt like I related to a character in a book. And it. It made me so sad. Like, it made me happy that I could relate to character, but it also made me so sad because I was like, this is what I've been missing my whole life. You mean when people watch TV or read a book, they can see themselves or their family in that book, and I've never felt like this until now. Uh, and so that was something that really woke me up to, like, there is another way of living where you can see yourself represented in culture. And so I got into reading a lot more Asian-American books or... There were more Asian American films like Crazy Rich Asians um, or Always Be My Maybe on Netflix. And now there's more about that experience and I'm able to connect more and realize that, okay, I'm Asian American and it's a very unique culture in and of itself. It's not totally Asian, it's not totally American, but we're in this in-between slash creating our own identity. It's, it's a, when I growing up in the UK, we got taught that America was the melting pot. But we also, we got taught theories about America, and I don't know if you got taught this, it was like, was America the melting pot, where all these cultures come together and then they get mixed up? Or was it like a mosaic, where if you take a step back, it looks like it's one picture, but then if you get closer, it's all these little, almost pixels, and there's different theories about what is America, so I, I don't know the answer. But I find what you just said there absolutely fascinating, because, so I'm in this position, I'm like a white European male, right? So culture has been pretty much built around me. <laughs> from my perspective, being growing up in, the, in Europe. So for you to say that you've never seen, you didn't realize that you hadn't seen yourself mirrored in pop culture or in a TV show, like to me is just like, wow. Because I've never, because I've never had that. So for you then being like realizing that you'd kind of never had it, then me realizing that you've never had it makes me realize that I've always had it. Because even now, like in the UK, there's a soap opera called, uh, I think it's Coronation Street, one of these terrible ones where it's the first, like, black family in the soap, in the soap, been going for like 40, 50 years, you know what I mean? And it's like, wow, it's taken so long to catch up. But that makes me sad now because now how many people of, you know, uh, ethnic descent in the UK who are British and they're watching these soap operas, but they're like, I don't relate to any of these characters. None of these reflect me. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is you don't, you also don't realize it's a problem until you feel like you relate to it for the first time. You're like, oh yeah, this is my life. Like, it's always fiction. Like, there's always aspects you can't relate to. I mean, there's no way you relate to, you know, 100% of the representations you see. But yeah, it's, it's almost as if it's more painful when I realized mm. it. Like, if I didn't realize it, it would have... I would have gone on and it's it's changing for the younger generation so I have a sister who's 15 years younger than me it's a lot younger than me almost as if she's pretty much a different generation she thinks very differently 
And for her, with all these Asian American shows, I'm like, isn't this exciting? And she's like, I don't know, whatever. You know, because she grew up watching YouTube and there's a lot of Asian American representation on YouTube and channels and there's so many niches you can go into. Whereas for me, when I grew up, like, on the internet, if I did see jokes I related to, they would be from Indian Americans or Mexican Americans, things like that, where I'm like, okay, you get it. Like, you're an other like me. And that's the closest I can get to having relatable content. It does. I feel there is... I feel my age these days, not like in a, I feel old, but like that generational gap, like I'm 36 now and it is like this younger generation have just had such a different exposure, right, to like what we've grown up with. I don't know how old you are actually, but um, yeah, it's just a completely different exposure, right? Definitely. And I, I so I'm almost 30 and I can see it with my sister who's like 15 like even from a very young age, let's say eight or so, she wanted us to have a YouTube channel and she wrote like her little pitch deck, which she couldn't really write at the time. So it's just stick drawings. And she's like, I will do unboxing presents. And my other sister will be the beauty blogger and you Tamar travel and food. And she had this whole plan and like everything, just like as a child, she always thought of things from the perspective of like, yeah, if I had a YouTube channel, you know, I would do this. And they're like, my YouTube channel will do this. And she doesn't have a YouTube channel right now. But it's just, it just shows that like, I never thought of things from that perspective growing up. Like I never thought I could be famous or that people who didn't know me would ever know who I was. Whereas she, it's more reachable, I guess, for that generation and more easy to imagine. Well, you made me think, I never grew up thinking about making a podcast but I've just remembered that I did like record myself on tape being like a radio DJ when I was younger and I'd have like a you know an old cassette tape and press record and then like pretend I was a DJ and play music so I guess I was just using another medium back then yeah exactly I guess yeah we had other mediums but it was I guess for us it was just much less likely that you would be like movie tv or radio star versus like Anyone can start, not anyone can start a podcast and YouTube channel, but it's easier to create your own thing versus like, let me apply to the local radio station and work my way up. Yeah, I mean, you can just create a podcast, put it out there and then it's done, or a YouTube channel. It's interesting what you're saying about your parents and being surrounded by Vietnamese people, because I've, I've talked about this with a couple of friends recently, and um, one of the things that annoys me the most is when governments try and enact immigration policies when they say like, ah, oh, immigrants need to integrate more they need to speak the language and it's like but they're first generation immigrants like no they don't like that that's not how immigration works it's their children and their children's children it's the second and the third generation they become fully integrated i've been an immigrant to america australia and new zealand i've never fully integrated with the local population most of my friends have always been expats from ireland scotland england america if they're expats as well because when you go over to these countries, even if you speak the same language, it's not easy to just integrate in. People already have their friend groups that they've grown up with their whole lives. They have their families there that they go and spend time with. It's not like you just land and then it's like, hey, you come and join my network of friends and family. And so naturally, through not on, you don't do it on purpose, just naturally you end up being friends with people who are like you. And it happens to be uh, people who also speak English, so it's not just like, ah, they've come from another country and they don't speak our language, like, they naturally hang out with people that are from their culture, that do speak the same language, obviously makes a massive difference as well. So it frustrates me when, you know, I think it was Australia tried to enact a policy where they made the, the language level ridiculously high, 
before you even got there. And you can only learn the language to that level if you immerse yourself in the culture. It's just like, so that frustrates me. And I think it makes it, it, makes it so much more understandable why first generation immigrants don't integrate. It's not a bad thing. It's just the way it is. Like, what do you think people just gonna accept them into their homes and be like, hey, you're an immigrant, come and be my friend. So I think the, the big difference is when it's the, the children, right? So how do you see that? And how do you, what was your experience of being a first generation immigrant, which you've kind of talked about there with like the TV and the culture and, and things like that? Yeah, that's a really good point. I've never thought of it like that because I definitely see the point of view of we want you to immigrate or integrate, but I also have the same experiences you did. I've lived in um, the UK, I've lived in uh, Turkey for a short amount of time, Singapore, Vietnam, and although in a lot of those countries, barring like maybe Turkey and Vietnam, the language barrier wasn't a huge component, but I still did end up hanging around with people who were recent arrivals like myself, other people from America or Canada because of that shared culture and because we just came and we don't have friends, whereas the local population, they already have friends that they grew up with. And so for me, I saw with my family that in America, you talked about the cultural mosaic or the melting pot. Maybe it's a mosaic within the people who first came, but it's a melting pot with the first generation that was born and raised there. For myself, uh, I had a lot of friends whose parents were from diff different backgrounds growing up, whether they were from India or Mexico or wherever. But I always saw them as Americans. Like we all saw each other as Americans. We grew up eating the same terrible, terrible trash food in America. We grew up watching the same TV shows and everything. So we had the same cultural background. And yeah, there were some differences given where our parents were coming from. But I felt like I, and I felt like everyone saw me as just as American as anyone else who was born in the US. So let's move on. You said that you'd been in Southeast Asia for three years now. So how did you get from Texas then to Southeast Asia? Yeah, so I studied marketing at the University of Texas. And after that, I think I mentioned I had lived in New York. Uh, so I lived in New York for about four years doing brand strategy. And I felt like I wanted to have a global role in London. That was the ultimate end goal. Uh, but being an American citizen and working in the UK, you have to prove that you're the best and there's no other talent in like the UK and maybe the EU that can fulfill your role. So I thought, okay, my background coming from working in New York for four years, isn't that unique or special? Let me see what else I can add to it. And so I figured if I worked in Singapore, it'd be a great mix because from Singapore, I would have a regional role and I would work with all these different countries that are so different like you have the philippines which is catholic and thailand which is heavily buddhist uh so you're getting different and indonesia and malaysia are muslim so we're getting different uh religions we're also getting different stage of economic development between somewhere like japan and singapore and somewhere more like cambodia or laos and so I felt like Singapore, working there would be the biggest bang for my buck. I spent a year and a half there. Most of it was spent traveling to different countries in Southeast Asia for work. 
a lot of it was Vietnam because even though I couldn't speak Vietnamese very well back in the day, uh, I could speak it more than the average British male, I guess. Um, and so they sent me to Vietnam a lot and I ended up loving Vietnam. I felt really at home here. I was really happy here. And eventually a friend just encouraged me like, hey, why don't you just move to Vietnam? And actually that's around the time I met Brandon. When I was considering moving to Vietnam, I knew that he was a photographer here in Vietnam. I discovered him through Instagram. And so we met up and I just asked him, what's it like being an American living in Vietnam? He highly encouraged me to make the move. And after talking to other people, I decided like, yeah, I'm gonna do it, made the move. And it's been the best move of my life. Like I, it's been my favorite place of all the cities I've lived in. I feel so happy here and I'm really glad I made the decision. So thank you, Brandon, if you're listening. I think he is, hopefully. Uh, now that's so cool. Um, what was it like in Singapore? Because I was just reading that Singapore is one of the top places to live as an expat, but it's slipping a little bit, and I think Vietnam might be overtaking it. I think the thing about Singapore is it depends on the kind of life you want to live. I think if you were a couple and you just started a family and you wanted stability and uh, you wanted to work your corporate job and be very comfortable with life, which there's nothing wrong with that. I think Singapore is a great place for that kind of lifestyle. For me, because I was coming from New York, I was looking for something a bit more entrepreneurial. I loved it when people had their different little side hustles or passion projects, and I'm just drawn to that kind of energy. So Saigon was a much better fit for me in that case. And when you got to Saigon, so what were you doing for work when you got here? When I got here, I was the director of business and strategy at an international branding agency. I was doing that for maybe about a year and towards the end of that, maybe like three months before that, I had started doing Saigonita, the closed door restaurant, and I had this idea of making Vietnamese Mexican food for probably a few years, but one of my friends here really encouraged me to do it. And I think that's the thing I love about Saigon. Like people are really entrepreneurial. They really push you. People are very supportive. And there's just that space where you can do crazy ideas and feel like you can take those chances. So then I thought like, I don't know who would ever pay to eat Vietnamese Mexican food in my apartment. Like people are gonna think I made a shitty version of Mexican food or a shitty version of Vietnamese food but whatever, I'm just gonna do it because this food represents like who I am and my upbringing and we'll just see like how it goes. And it went really well. And so it started taking off a lot more. I saw a lot of promise with it. And I figured like, I can always go back into branding and, but I may not always have this opportunity. And if I wanna grow it or see where it can go, I should concentrate all of my efforts on it. And so I quit my job and just focused on being a chef and developing myself in the culinary field. So my question is, your mom's not a good cook. You said earlier that you didn't cook in college. How did you end up becoming a chef? That's right, yeah. <laughs> so uh, it was actually when I was in New York, it was very expensive to eat out. I was very poor. And I also the other thing that happened in New York is in Texas, we can go to the grocery store and we'll have fresh made tortillas. Like it's just right there and it's very easy to buy, pick up. We had a lot of great Mexican food, less so in New York. Uh, it is a lot farther away from Mexico and all the tortillas you see in the store, like 
you know, like mission tortillas from a giant factory that was made like a week ago um, versus an hour ago. And so I figured like, okay, I'm just gonna start making my own tortillas. And I got really into health as well. And so I started making everything from scratch. Uh, and I was making, yeah, I was bringing all of my lunches to work. And one day I had a coworker who said like, can I pay you to make lunches for me? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, like making lunch for one versus making lunch for two is not a huge difference and it's not a huge difference in cost. And I could, it's easier sometimes, right? Yeah, exactly. It's easier and I can actually have more variety of food to eat instead of eating the same salad every day. And so I figured like, so I started doing that and I realized like, wow, people would pay me for my food. Um, yeah. And then that's what got me thinking like, hey, I think I'm like a pretty decent cook and it was just a huge hobby of mine. And so once I got to Vietnam, I made sure I learned from Singapore that ovens are not always a guaranteed thing in Asia. And so once I got to Vietnam, I made sure I had an oven. I still kept cooking in my life, especially um, with cooking non-Vietnamese food, just because that can be a bit harder to get your hands on or a bit more expensive here. And yeah, then this thing started happening and I realized like, yeah, I'm not a bad cook at all. So this is great. So it came quite late then. Yeah, it came, it came later in life. But yeah, I, I wish I wish I could say something like I grew up cooking with my mom and, you know, my grandma and my mom are the best Which cooks I know. Which is that like stereotype. Like I watched that movie, Always Be My Maybe. And it's <laughs> like, you know, she's cooking with the mom and it's, you know, it's that thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or like, oh, my parents owned a restaurant, which is another common like Asian American stereotype. But I had none of that. My compu- my parents are computer programmers. Um, I had I was <laughs> I had a friend come to one of my Saganita dinners. He's a uh, Mexican American, and we were with some other friends. And he's like, I know you guys think it's cool that Tam does this thing, and you think it makes sense, but actually it makes no sense because when she first moved to New York and lived with me, she was messing up pasta. She was a terrible cook, and it is amazing that she has gone so far. And I've had, I've had other friends messed up pasta. Yeah, like yeah, I just didn't drain it of enough water, so it's like super watery. Yeah, and then I've had yeah other friends as well who I've cooked for even as recently as Singapore, and they're like, "Man, I remember you really would mess up these dishes, and like now your food is actually good, and it's an incredible transformation." So it just goes to show you how much like hard work and research and practice, like just putting in your hours, and you you really do get better. It's not it wasn't something I was born naturally being able to do. And so obviously, so in Houston, you had exposure to a lot of Mexican food, right? Mm-hmm. I think Mexican food is like my um, favorite, probably my favorite cuisine. I'm very lucky. My wife, she's also from Texas, as a, I think I've mentioned. And um, she makes like unbelievable Mexican food. And, and um, we've been back there and eaten some great food. So what kind of like food did you enjoy growing up? Yeah, so growing up, it was being in Texas. Tex-Mex was obviously a big thing. It doesn't work as well mixing it with Vietnamese food, so I don't stay too much in the Tex-Mex area. Can you explain a little bit, because I still sometimes get confused. What exactly is Tex-Mex versus Mexican food? Of course, of course. So, I mean, a way I like to defend Tex-Mex, because people will say, ah, it's, you know, like, you grew up eating Tex-Mex, not Mexican food. And I'm like, we still had Mexican people in Texas, and they still cooked Mexican food. But um, think of it 
I like to think of it more as regional differences. Texas was a part of Mexico, so this could be considered maybe a nor northern Mexican version of foods. And within Mexico itself, there's so many different regions and different types of cooking. But generally, what will tip you off, whether something is Tex-Mex versus Mexican, is um, more use of flour tortillas. Mexican food does use flour tortillas, but Tex-Mex will use a bit more. Like you'll see in fajitas, uh, which is a Tex-Mex dish. Um, there's more use of beef. We have a lot of cows in Texas, so it makes sense. We would use a lot more beef products. Uh, black beans as well and cheese. And so those kinds of things will kind of tip you off that this is something that is more Tex-Mex versus Mexican and things like burritos, those are California Mexican. So that's a whole other state of different types of Mexican food as well. Uh, and then so with typical Tex-Mex dish, you'll get queso, my personal favorite, which is like, I like to think of it as a redneck fondue because it's just this cheese, it's just cheese, peppers and onions, melted, and you do it with tortilla chips and you it's so simple and you feel so stupid doing it, but it tastes so good. I don't think there's anything better than queso, good queso, yeah, for sure. That's really interesting. I never thought about that geographically because yeah, Texas is northern Mexico and California is north western Mexico, right? Like yeah, our states used to be part of Mexico, so it's you know that we have Tejanos and we have a rich culture between the two countries because they used to be one country. And so, what's your favorite Mexican food then? My favorite Mexican food, mm, I would say. Okay, so I don't want to put things in, like for example, when people always think about Vietnamese food, they're like, oh, pho. And I don't want to do that with tacos because when people think of Mexican food, they think of tacos because they're like, but I do love, to, you know, there's so many other Mexican dishes, but I do love tacos, uh, especially done very simply where there's just like two thin corn tortillas, diced onions, cilantro, and yeah, and then just like carne asada or something and a good salsa. I feel like it's very simple, but it hits the spot. I also love um, horchata, which is the rice milk cinnamon drink. So whenever I see horchata as like an option somewhere, I'll tend to get it. Um, those are two dishes I really like because I think the rice milk helps balance out any of the spiciness from the salsas. And it's just very simple, very good. What would be your favorite Mexican food that's not a common known food? I would say, I'm trying to think. Something that I've liked in terms of experimentation with, because this is not, I know this is not exactly what you're asking for, but something that I like is tamales and specifically the type of tamales where they use banana leaves, which is more common in Oaxaca because it really reminds me of the Vietnamese dish ban nam, which is like our, almost like our version of tamales. It's something that's steamed with a filling, wrapped in banana leaves. And so those are two things where I really see a lot of commonalities between our culture, but because people usually think of tacos when they think of Mexican food and they usually think of like ban mi or pho when they think of Vietnamese food, they overlook that we do have a lot of similarities if you dig deeper within the different types of dishes. Yeah, that's interesting. My favorite, or maybe not my favorite, but um, 
when I was in Texas, we were in El Paso, we were visiting my wife's family, and you know, her grand is just, grandmother's just an amazing cook, makes all these things, and they're like, here, Neil, try this, and I was like, what is it? And they're like, just try it first. And I'm not a fuss eater, but I don't, I'm not, I don't eat like just anything. So I was like, no, no, what is it? And they're like, just try it first. So I did, I tried it, and oh my goodness, it was amazing. It was like this stew, kind of rich tomato sauce, I guess, if I remember right. And um, I was like, what is it? And it was cow's tongue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's called langua, mm-hmm. at the end of this. But I still remember that as one of the, the favorite things that I had when I, when I visited there. But I grew up eating Mexican food, but eating that crappy tortilla, like, we had an old El Paso, I think you probably have the same, like, old El Paso fajita mix, old El Paso tortillas, like, it was always my favorite food, but now I'm like, I know good Mexican food. I think I do, anyway. What's your favorite Mexican food in um, Ho Chi Minh City? Uh, In Ho Chi Minh City, there's a lot of good ones to choose from. I like, I actually really like gringos. I just like the name, but I like the tacos. Uh, or not, not just the tacos, I actually like their tostadas a lot as well, which is like a crispy corn tortilla base instead, so then that's a pretty different texture. Um, and I also like tippies as well, so those are two I really like. I feel as well with the Mexican food uh, in Ho Chi Minh and Saigon, they all kind of specialize almost in different things, you know what I mean, like I think tippies is... Maybe one of the best for burritos. Like if I want a, a nice, a good burrito, I'll go to go to Tippy. Um, and then if I want tacos, I'll go to Macho Taco, which has been they've become like my favorite recently. Not only because they're very close, but they're, they're it's Mexican food by Mexicans, which is I think the only one in in Saigon that can actually say that. But uh, we're spoiled, I think, for Mexican food in Saigon. And I think I maybe talked about this. Maybe I'm repeating myself. I maybe talked about this with. JK, but like one of my colleagues one time said to me, she's like, oh, there's no good Mexican food in Saigon. And like, I was like, what? And she'd only been to one place and didn't know about anything else. I like wrote down a list of all these places for her and now she's been to all of them. And she's like, oh yeah, okay. You saw the similarities between Vietnamese food and Mexican food. So was that quite an easy connection to make then when you wanted to start your closed door restaurant? Right away, when I was younger, I realized that I was explaining a lot of Vietnamese dishes by using Mexican or Tex-Mex dish terms. Like, there is a dish I like in Vietnamese is banyum yum, which is this hot pot, and you put beef in it, and then you make your own roll. And since then, I've realized there are a lot of make-your-own-roll dishes here. But the making-your-own-roll part really reminded me of fajitas. So when I would introduce my friends in America who weren't Vietnamese, to the dish, I would just say like, oh, it's like Vietnamese fajitas. And when I first saw Ben Chang Nung on the street, I was, and they would call it Vietnamese pizza, I was like, no, it's not Vietnamese pizza, it's Vietnamese quesadilla. The way it's done here, it's exactly, it looks just like a quesadilla, it's folded in half, it's mm-hmm. grilled. Uh, and so I saw a lot of those similarities. It wasn't super easy for me to come up with all the dishes, but uh, it took it took some brainstorming and some things started to click. Another thing is I really love puns. So there are some dishes where I would just come up with the dish's name, like a pun dish first. Like one that I'm really proud of is Hue, Vos Rancheros. And so I was like, oh, okay, that's an easy pun, mixing Hue and Hue Vos Rancheros, which is another dish that I love. But then that's as far as I got. I was like, okay, well, I obviously know it should have some elements of Hue Vos Rancheros. And it should have a taste of hue 
but I don't know. Yeah, exactly. But I don't know what else. And then eventually, eventually it got worked over. It got the kinks got worked through. And same thing with the Benjang Nung and the quesadilla. For me, that one was so obvious. But I kept trying to use rice paper outside and putting like chorizo and cheese on the inside, and it just wasn't working. It was too greasy and it was just a mess. But then one day I finally had the revelation. Like, oh, I make a flour tortilla outside and I use the benjang nung, like minced pork, laughing cow cheese, green onions inside the flour, the flour tortilla. And that's how I can come up with my benjang nung slash quesadilla. So some things took a bit of reworking, mm. but it seems, you know, on the face of it, at first, yeah, it does maybe seem like, ah, it's a bit weird, right? Vietnamese food and Mexican. But now we're having this conversation. I'm like, yeah, no, it seems like quite a natural fit. Like a lot, a lot of the ingredients are similar, right? Like pulled pork, cilantro, coriander, if you're from the UK, tomatoes, like what else would be similar ingredients? Lime, they well, use the I mean, lime yeah, versus lime, lemon. Course, yeah, because yeah. that was something when I was younger, I would always think like, okay, white people dishes have lemon. But everyone else, like Mexican and Vietnamese food, we use limes. And you can't that's see how me I laughing think. right now. I'm laughing so hard because, yeah, white people use lime and that's so true. <laughs> yeah. You would never have lime with your fish and chips and you would never have lemon with your tacos, right? That's, those two are abominations. And that confused me a lot in Vietnam because I think there's a mistranslation where they call lime lemon, right? It's because yellow lemons do not exist in Vietnam. So why would they have a word for something that never existed in their culture or in the country for, you know, Vietnam's 5,000 years old, for 5,000 years. So they use the word jan, which you can apply to a lime or a lemon. But in English, because we use two different words, we see them as two different things. And I used to always get mad at my mom about that. I'm like, mom, I need a lemon. And she would hand me a lime. And I'm like, it's not the same thing. And she's like, it's the same thing. And I'm like, no, it's totally different. Yeah, I'm eating white people food right now. I can't use the lime. We've had that happen here, yeah. We've asked for a lime and they give you a lemon or vice versa. And yeah, I didn't know the exact background too, but yeah, that makes sense. So what's the dish you're most proud of then? The dish I'm most proud of, uh, I would say, besides the huevos rancheros, because that pun ended up awesome. Uh, <laughs> I love a pun as well, and that is yeah. a good one, yeah. Uh, I made a one dish that everyone seems to really remember and gravitate towards is I made this grilled corn dish. Uh, so it's a play off the lote or bop um, nung here, which is not as common as like bop sao, but anyways. So... It's a grilled corn dish, and then with it, I used a I use I make a mayonnaise using duck egg, and then usually this dish you'll have cotilla cheese on top. But since now I can make queso fresco, so I'll do that. But before I didn't know how to make my own cheese, and so I'm like, what's the cheese of Vietnam? Laughing cow cheese. So then I just mix that with the mayonnaise, mix it with garlic spread it all over as the base, put on some coriander, cilantro, and then instead of chili powder, this is more of a Tam thing versus like any other country thing, but then I'll crush flaming hot Cheetos and put those on top and then serve it with a wedge of lime. And I just love, like I grew up eating flaming hot Cheetos, so it comes from my childhood, but it also has a beautiful story. Um, the inventor of flaming hot Cheetos, he was actually this Mexican-American immigrant he was a child, the youngest child of maybe like 10 different siblings and he had to drop out of high school because he didn't know enough English and he became a janitor at Frito-Lay 
And one day he had the idea to make spicy Cheetos because he saw an elote and he's like, oh, corn and spicy. Hmm, that could be a thing. And so he called up the CEO, and, which is crazy to think a janitor would call up the CEO. And he gets the, the receptionist and she's like, you know, where are you calling from? He's like, California. She's like, oh, you're the general manager of California? And he's like, no, not exactly. I work at this plant. She's like, oh, you're the general manager of the plant. And he's like, no, I'm the janitor here. And she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and somehow she manages to put him through. He talks to the CEO of Frito-Lay and he's like, hey, I have this great idea for you. You know, spicy Cheetos. And the CEO, bless his heart, is like, okay, I'll be in... Yeah, I'll be at your plan in two weeks, so maybe you can prepare a presentation for me. And he's like, great. And then he goes home, he's like, oh shit, like I am a janitor. I don't know how to make a PowerPoint presentation or do any kind of presentation. So he and his wife, they go to their public library, look up Marketing 101, Business 101, create this whole deck, and then they present it to the CEO at this whole big meeting. And then the CEO, and then there's someone in the meeting, some board member, and he's like, so how much market share do you think you can gain with this Flaming Hot Cheetos variety versus our existing varieties? And he was just like, I don't know what this means. So he just raised his arms really big and he's like, this much market share. And he was right. It became their best selling flavor and he's now vice president of multicultural marketing at Frito-Lay. From janitor to that executive position because he had a great idea and it worked and resonated with people. That's such a cool story. So we'll move on to the uh, final questions that I ask everybody. We've talked about food a lot but we're going to nail it down. Uh, so tell me, what are your top three Vietnamese foods? This was very hard for me to come up with but I think I've gotten a good three range. Uh, my first one is Benjang Jong, and that's the cut of rice paper. That one, I would say, is like the Flaming Hot Cheetos of Vietnam. Like when I first tasted it, I my mind was blown. I'm like, it's sour, it's spicy, it's got herbs, I love it. If I had known about this as a child, I'd probably be dead now because this is all I would eat and I'd have no nutrients going into my body. But I love Benjang Jong. Can you describe it a bit? Yeah, so it's purchased off the streets and they get pieces of rice paper, cut it up into strips and then you add um, unripe like shreds of unripe mango, calamansi, um, some spicy sauce and oil to it and I think like shrimp, shrimp salt. Yeah, yeah. I, I hate I hate the tiny little shrimp so I always ask for none of that and I'll put beef jerky in instead. And then, um, and then rao ram, which is Vietnamese coriander. And then it's just like shaken and eaten with chopsticks. And you gotta eat it fast before the rice paper gets too soggy. But um, yeah, it's just a nice street snack. And I'm the type of person who eats rice paper plain, like by myself, just walking. Like my friends made fun of me because I brought some rice paper to the movie theater and I was just snacking on it, like dry. Uh, so I have friends who eat like ramen noodles dry. I, I do that too. Yeah. I didn't know that was a thing. I was like, what Especially are you doing? when you pull the, you know, get a little spice in the packet, season it up. <laughs> but there's these things I'm, like we've talked about that seem so strange when you first get here. Like I saw this is my friend, he's from England, his girlfriend's Vietnamese. And I saw him do it and I was like, what are you doing? He's like, yeah, this is, this, you eat noodles like this. And he obviously learned it from his girlfriend. 
basically it's like eating a bag of chips yeah like, it's like, like eating a bag of chips like, yeah i guess so like and then in other episodes we've talked before about like having um beef stew for breakfast i don't know if mm-hmm. you had that like baka mm-hmm. i had that this morning i just laughed to myself i posted it on facebook i was like i'm having beef stew for breakfast but damn it was good yeah um i to go off of that story yeah i eat the ramen noodles like dry right and like raw and once i saw one of my friends eating pasta dry and i was like you're disgusting what the <laughs> fuck is that and he's like it's the same like what you do and i'm like no Oh, that's nasty. Oh, yeah, that nasty. You're just eating penne pasta from the bag. What? Why was he doing that? I don't know why he was doing it. I don't know. That's weird, yeah. Okay, yeah. So dish one, ban yeah. chong. Second dish is ban kang. And so I always have to be careful with that because there's a dish called ban kang and I don't like ban kang, but I love ban kang. So <laughs> ban kang is a dish that has like the big fat tapioca noodles. I hate that dish. And it usually comes with crab because the crab parts are like, I just feel like it's not clean and it gets in your mouth. But anyway, but ban gang are these, um, it's rice flour and it's poured into this like terracotta frame and grilled. I guess that like there's like a charcoal grill and they put a little quail egg in there. And so it's something that came from the Cham people of Vietnam. So you'll see it a lot in Fanti, where it's from, but also Nyachang, Dalak, they each have their own version. And so I didn't try it until I got to Dalak for the first time. And I was like, it looks like mini little egg McMuffins. And I just thought like, what? This is a dish that's here in my parents' hometown and I've never had it. And I've been missing it my whole life. It's really nice, especially when it's crispy and it's hot and you're in Dalak and it's cold. And you can get a nice bowl of either the fish sauce with um, the unripe mangoes and some shumai pork sausages, or you can get it with uh, mom, the fermented fish sauce that, or fermented fish paste that can go with it. So that's a really nice dish. And I really like that it shows Vietnam's like different ethnic diversity and how that's like played a role in Vietnamese cuisine. And then my final dish that I really like, this is a Hue dish. I never knew it existed until I went to Hue, is Ban Koi. Uh, let me make sure I'm saying it right. Because that's another dish that I always mispronounce. Because people hear me and they're like, oh, you mean Ban Kot. And I'm like, no, not Ban Kot from Vung Tao. I'm talking about Ban Koi, which is like a Ban Sale, but it's thicker and it's crunchier. And it actually gave birth to the Ban Sale. So the Ban Sale is a descendant of Ban Koi. Uh, which I prefer more than the ban sale. So those are three dishes I really like. Ban jang jong, ban kang, and ban koi. And ban koi is pretty hard to find outside of Hue. I found maybe like a couple places in Saigon that do it, but it's a very special dish for that. I'm so hungry now. <laughs> it's, it's lunchtime now. I'm so excited for lunch now. Um... That's awesome. I like, I like that you've got, uh, it's not just pho. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what a lot of people enter. I'm always surprised if someone says pho, because I think it's pretty boring. Yeah. For all the Vietnamese food that's out there. Exactly, exactly. It's, yeah, I am surprised it got as popular as it did, because it is, like, pretty, blah, uh, yeah, boring it's, compared yeah, to everything else. It's just broth soup, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, like, anything crazy. And so uh, we're so spoiled now in Saigon for things to do and places to go. Where's your favorite place to hang out in Saigon? So I'm actually a huge like 
spa junkie. So my favorite places are actually Miu Miu Spa for massages or Girl Boss for like getting my nails done and stuff. So I, yeah, I spend a lot of time getting massages. That is a benefit of living here, yeah, for sure. And what about uh, like coffee or milk tea or are you? Uh, coffee or milk tea. So I'm a little bit lactose intolerant, which actually pretty much every Vietnamese person is. Uh, so I try to stay away from those things, but I recently discovered um, this like cult brand of milk tea tiger sugar has come to Vietnam and there were some fake tiger sugars out there, but we finally found the real one. Um, it's it's near that milk tea area of Nguyen Hue, but yeah, tiger sugar was pretty good. They were known for their brown sugar um, and it actually compared to other brown sugar drinks out here it actually tastes good you can you can tell it's significantly better than other milk teas uh so i guess i'm also a little bit of a milk tea connoisseur oh really <laughs> are you really yeah I, I have brands and preferences and i can definitely tell like there's a reason this milk tea place isn't popular despite all their like ads or you know like despite mm. all their discounts and stuff because there are some that are clearly better than others well do you know what uh my wife and i had last night we had a brown sugar milk tea ice cream oh whoa i've never seen before i can show you the shop on the corner just outside of here. oh man that sounds that really good, good. Well. yeah, yeah. You know, i like picked up i was like what's this i was like oh yeah definitely get yeah do they have like tapioca toppings mm. oh my god that's Inside so it, yeah. oh my god wow i'll show you after okay please yeah. um so, and, and you've heard before, I've asked everyone this question. Why do you choose to stay in Saigon? For me, a big part is getting to know my roots and my heritage from being here. Even though my family's not from Saigon, I guess that's why I stay in Vietnam in general. Um, it's been, yeah, it's been an amazing journey of self-discovery these past couple of years. And I think growing up and... Even though my parents didn't talk that much about Vietnam, there would be random snippets. But so much of what I knew about Vietnam was, I guess, controlled by what they would tell me. Whereas now I'm like, I get to see it for myself. I get to live it for myself. Like when my mom tells me like, oh, you know, like Vietnamese students would be doing math much harder than you. And they're just so much better than you. And like now I can like live the life here and be like, I don't know. I was pretty good and they're not that great. So... <laughs> <laughs> Everything's a fallacy here. Exactly. Everything you've been told growing up. You're like, that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what one thing would you change about Saigon? One thing I change about Saigon or just uh I think Vietnam in general is food safety. Uh I think we take it for granted coming from countries like Scotland and America that the food you buy from a store or wherever it would be safe, but just here, like I was reading a report from 2015, and I think maybe 40% of the pork found had salmonella. And yeah, and I just didn't realize these things till I talked to my grab drivers. And they, they always ask me, why are you living in Vietnam? And I'm like, life is good here. You know, I'm having so much fun. It's great. And then they're like, well, like a poor person in America is much better off than a poor person in Vietnam. Because at least in America, even if you're so poor which is awful it's an awful place to be but you would at least know that the food you're eating is safe whereas that's not even a guarantee here and so I, I don't know if there's anything I could do to change that I don't think so but uh that's something that would be great to change to just like raise the bar to where 
people aren't even concerned about food safety because a lot of the food ideas I come up with are things like ceviche or carpaccio or dehydrated meats or just things that are not I guess cooked it or something that's smoked and so so then people do have concern about food safety and for me I guess I came from a position where I'm like oh yeah I would assume it's safe and that's why I can eat the fish like if it's a little raw it's fine or if the meat's a little raw I'm sure it's okay but here you can't just make those assumptions. I think it is getting better maybe slowly because there, there is a push I've read like the street vendors which is a bit of a shame because everything right like when you have development it almost pushes out like those traditions and things like that and Vietnam's known for its street food but it's maybe not like have you seen a street vendor clean their hands or have you seen like the equipment that they're using like a Vietnamese friend told me once that if you get Vietnamese food and it doesn't taste too good it's because it's clean and if you get Vietnamese food and it tastes amazing it's because it's dirty interesting like street food style you know like that which is some of the best food but it's not clean but i think they're trying to clean up the street vendors i've seen some street vendors now wearing plastic gloves and i think some of them are maybe even getting kind of closed down if they're not up to safety but food safety yet yeah, nobody's brought that up and that is a good point because i've been here as i've mentioned over three years and it was a massive concern when we first got here with coffee as well because there's lots of fake coffee as well and so with coffee, I feel quite comfortable now. Like I go to places I trust I'll, or I'll get my own beans and get them ground right in front of me. But with food safety, I think I've maybe just kind of blocked it out a little bit. I think mostly I, I, I eat at a lot of Western places that I do trust and I don't eat street food so often that if it is unsafe, I'm not too concerned. But there was a, a big problem recently with pork, right? Yeah, the African swine flu. Yeah, it was a problem. And yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, I haven't gotten sick being here, but I would like also no one else in Vietnam to get sick. Well, I've never been sick. I mean, I've, I've been sick, but I wouldn't attribute it to food at any point. My, my main concern was long-term exposure because I don't think a lot of the food safety issues, I'm not really worried about. If you get sick, you get sick. You can, that can happen anywhere, right? Like you get a little bug or, or something like that. My main concern is, yeah, that long-term exposure to things that are in the food that, that shouldn't be there. But during that, that problem recently with the pork, because one of my friends, his girlfriend is a food scientist, and she warned us. She was like, stop eating pork right now. It, it's really bad. And Macho Taco, another reason I love them, I asked them about it because I really wanted a pork uh, taco, and they import their pork, um, which was awesome. So I was like, yes, I can have a, a pulled pork taco then. But um, I think it's something I maybe need to consider consider more about what would you say what's the biggest tips to to protect yourself here from the food yeah i know when i was coming up so one of my dish ideas was coming up with a kind of deconstructed version of pho where pho thai where you know pho thai usually you get that kind of raw meat and it cooks in the broth and so i was thinking like oh i'll arrange raw beef kind of like you would see in a beef carpaccio with all the herbs of pho and i'll pour boiling hot pho on top of it and it'll cook the meat that way and so with that one I know a big concern of my guests was just like yeah is it safe and so I made sure like with a lot of my meats where cooking where I'm not going to cook the heck out of it then I make sure I get imported meats um but I know not everyone can afford that too but yeah I generally have some good sources of where to go I think um and um I generally trust them places like that 
Um, that's very expensive. Yeah, exactly. For the, average, for the average person, what advice would you give them to make sure that they are eating safe food? I think one thing is that I've heard is make sure you go to if I eat a lot of street food, just go to places that are pretty crowded where there's a lot of turnovers and the meat's not sitting there. Because a good thing about Vietnamese food is that they really emphasize getting fresh meat, like pork that's cut that day and you cook it that day, and that does help cut down on a lot of the bacteria, a lot of the diseases that are in it. And so I guess going to a popular place. Because that book uh, I had today was at the market. And as I was eating it, I was like, she would have literally bought this beef from across from there. But that doesn't also fill me with confidence because if you've been to Vietnam and you know here, the, the meat just sits out. How is I don't understand that I coming don't... from our culture. How does it? How does that not make everybody sick that the meat just sits out and there's... I know it's not in the direct sun, but it's... I have no idea because we're also taught like if anything sits out for more than 20 minutes, it's already gaining bacteria and stuff like that. Um, I generally never buy my meat from there, although I have heard from different Vietnamese cooks and chefs that it's like a fresh way to do it. Maybe like you eat it in the morning, you know? Yeah, because yeah. I've never bought meat from there. I would always buy my meat from the supermarket, yeah. but I've definitely eaten dishes like this morning that I would yeah. be very surprised if the meat hadn't come from there. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, maybe it's eating those dishes in the morning when you feel like, okay, they just bought it this morning yeah. and they just cooked it or... Um, yeah, or knowing like, oh, maybe, yeah, maybe they just cooked it all, mm. all the meat, like once they got it. Have you heard of Cho Kim Ma? The, I... the market of death? No. Well, this is a market, I think, I don't want to say the district because I'll get it wrong. It might be District 10. It's known as the chemical market and where they sell all these chemicals. I'll send you the article um, that basically like tons, they, they've, it's in this article, they talk about it, it tons like pork that's old and it makes it taste like beef and it's they just sell all these food chemicals it completely like changes the food i've heard about like you have to be careful where you buy your milk tea as well because you can buy these like tapioca balls that are actually like just plastic have you heard about that you can buy like um coffee syrup that's made from roasted soybeans and it's all sold in this market and it worried me when i read this this was just recently i was like where is it sold like, where is that meat sold that's been treated with these? And I don't know the answers. Yeah, yeah. Who are they distributing to? Yeah, because yeah. people are buying it. It's a market. It's in business. People are going there. They're buying that stuff. And they're being sold it as, it will do this to your meat. It will change old chicken into, like, you know, taste like pork, things like that. So that's it. I'll find that one and send it to you. Um, so what's the most... But I don't want to scare people into eating Vietnamese food. That's another well, thing. Well, this is the but, thing, yeah. right? Yeah, but so... it's the truth. It is the reality of what's happening. Like, I know in the north, when you go to Sapa, they're very worried about their vegetables and stuff sold at the market because they think it all comes from China and there's so much, like, processing and, like, fake stuff involved. And so, like, yeah, people in the north of Vietnam aren't even very confident mm. about their vegetables. And I don't want to scare people either. And I, I did scare people when I first got here because they got like coffee on the street for like 10,000. I was like, don't buy the coffee on the street. It's fake. And it probably was. And the, there has been times where there was the one, I think, I don't know if it was when you were here, when they found the woman using batteries. I've own, heard of that. Batteries yeah. Make, but I think oh, she was yeah. using it as fertilized, not as coffee, but maybe she was. I don't know. But, but it's something to be aware of. I don't think it's something to be scared of so much. Like, as I said, I've never been seriously sick here. I've 
maybe like I've been sick, but I probably would have been the same time amount of time sick back home anyway. I wouldn't attribute it to being here. My main concern is the long term effect, which I won't know about until many years in the future, which would probably be the biggest barrier to my wife and I living here forever because of that exposure to the pollution and exposure to to the food and things like that. So moving on to the next question is, what is the most misunderstood thing about Saigon? Most misunderstood thing? Um, I know... Yeah, I know I brought it up a lot, but I really, it really does annoy me that people only think of pho and banh mi because those things were influenced, well, banh mi obviously, but also from what I've read about the history of pho, those things are influenced by France or during the French colonial time, which was maybe just like 200 years ago. And seeing as Vietnam's history is 5,000 years old, that's like a flash in the pan or that's so recent. And yet what most of the world knows about the Vietnamese food scene is just those two dishes. Um, so I think that's something that's misunderstood and also that it is just a place of like cheap street food. Um, I feel like there are some amazing higher-end dining restaurants that are popping up. Like Anan is doing cool things, modernizing Vietnamese food and just trying to think of it in a different way because these foods do require a lot of time and effort to make. And I see, um, yeah, I see Western food having such a high price tag, whereas a Vietnamese dish, which may take as long or require as much technique, if and sometimes even more, like can't command those kinds of price tags. And so, yeah, so then I guess misunderstood things is just that it's all cheap, pho, and banh mi, when there's a lot more mm. to it. But there are expensive um, Vietnamese restaurants out there. Like sometimes you go somewhere and you see like 120,000 dong or more. I've seen it more expensive for pho, like pho, and you're like, what? I'm not paying that. I get it for 20,000. But mm -hmm. again, you're paying for a completely different product, right? So um, that always surprises me when you see Vietnamese food that, that is expensive. Because, yeah, I guess there is this just perception that all Vietnamese food is, is dirt cheap, right? Yeah, exactly. Or the same. And, and same thing, like, let's say, yeah, I could make... There are different ways to make a taco. You could make one where, yeah, you're just buying all the tortillas, whatever, and you're just using fake cheese. Or, like, for me, there was... A, for my last dinner... I got corn, nixonized it, grounded it, made my own masa, then made the tortilla, then I made the cheese. You know, like, it, yeah. that that taco should not cost the mm. same as the other taco. And sometimes it's hard to see that as the consumer, right? Because to you, it's just a taco. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Now, uh, what's your favorite place to get out of town? Have you had m many chances to get out of Saigon? Yeah. And, I, are you like me? Do you feel like every now and again, you just need to get out? Uh, I, I love being in Saigon, and I actually don't like leaving because I get huge FOMO every time I leave. But I I leave because I know it's better for me to leave, to know different parts of Vietnam, to know different parts of the culture, and also to get acquainted with different foods. Uh, I was just recently back in Da Lac. I, I, know, I know from your podcast, a lot of people also say Da Lac is <laughs> their favorite way to, place to get away. But it is a truly special place. I think it was like my fourth or fifth time there. And because it is my parents' hometown and I do still have some family, friends, or relatives, I just feel immensely, like, at home when I'm there. Like, I'm very happy when I'm hanging out with my 
extended relatives and they just took me to like this nice fun sale place last time and yeah and, and just being in that atmosphere I realized like wow being in Delhi I feel very at peace and it is a lot quieter the weather is cooler I remember in Yatjang when I was there with my mom I was just getting angry and snapping at her all the time um but in Delhi I, I had a lot more patience because I wasn't out in the sun and it wasn't so humid and like yeah I was just a lot more at peace there I noticed it's a city a special city that changes how I act and behave I've only actually been there I think twice and my biggest problem with Dalat is that uh, the airport's so far away from the town right like it's what half an hour 45 minutes I think it's the 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 topography of Dalat means that the airport just has to be we were looking at the map saying why is the airport so far away and it's literally like the only flat piece of land <laughs> so it, and it's expensive as well right it's like three four hundred thousand maybe more in a taxi from the airport to Dalat is that right I think so yeah it is far but the drive is nice it's like through the mountains yeah we did it at night yeah. <laughs> so it was like you, you can take a night bus there um, I don't trust the buses. <laughs> That's the other problem, right? <laughs> yeah, I've taken. I've gone to Dalat by a bus and by a plane. I much prefer by a plane. Yeah, yeah. much safer, right? Yeah. So, last question: What advice would you give to someone who's thinking of living here? And I think you have a, a very good perspective on that. I think um, to echo advice that was given to me years ago: learn Vietnamese. <laughs> I it just. I would say within, like, let's just say you take lessons for a month. I would say in just that month, you would probably learn 70 to 90% of what you have to say on a daily basis. Most of what you're going to have to say is giving directions and ordering food at a restaurant. Uh, That's and it, literally all I know, and I barely even know that. But I can get by, you know? Yeah, I know, exactly. It's just like if you learn that ahead of time, I think it will help you immensely in feeling more independent and free here mm. so that would be my recommendation um, learning money was one of the first things that we learned and that's that's kept us pretty well like learning just how to ask for money and understand has made life so much easier yeah exactly i i try to learn a few words in each in the language of each country i go to like in I can probably say in like German, French, Spanish, like so many different languages, like bread, cheese, and ham. <laughs> and I lived briefly in Istanbul, and there I quickly learned how to just, yeah, counting so I could bargain at markets and directions. And with that, I was just surprised like how much of life I was able to navigate from like very basic Turkish skills. So just doing that for any country you go to yeah, it no, that makes a thing. world of a difference. It's it's the biggest like bang for your buck because after you keep studying for a while, then the gains are very marginal. You feel a little more discouraged. But in the beginning, it's it's quite fun. The, the most fun phrase that I've learned and that I use repeatedly is makwa. <laughs> Which means too expensive, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. So that's really helpful for haggling. And I just yeah. do it as a joke sometimes, even if I know it's not too expensive. Exactly. I'll be like, Makwan! Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a phrase I learned in Turkish too. Pahala. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it's important. Gotta know this phrase. And then the other one I learned was too cheap, rewa. Uh, which you never need to use. Yeah. <laughs> but then sometimes I'll throw it in as a joke and be like, rewa. And then they're like, what? Too cheap? And then I'm yeah. like, no, I'm kidding. Here you go. Here yeah. You go. <laughs> so that's the end of my questions that's the end of our interview um, 
Again, I feel like I say this to every guest, but it's so interesting. Like, I really do enjoy doing this. I, I really enjoy hearing these stories, learning more about people. And that, that was why I started the podcast, was like, I just find so many interesting people here, and I want to know people's backgrounds, and you learn so much that you never knew before. So thank you so much for that. It's been yeah. awesome. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about Saganita. We've talked about its kind of genesis. What's next with it? What's happening? Um, how is it growing? What What are you going to do with that? Because I've not been, but I'm definitely coming to, my wife and I are definitely coming to the next one. Yeah, so with Sayanita, um, the next few months or the next few weeks or so, I'm trying to just spend a lot more time traveling around Vietnam to give myself more inspiration. So recently, I, like I said on the show, I was in Nha Trang Da Lac. I was also in Bu Uh So I got to see those cities and experience what's different there and I'm hoping to hit up some other cities around Vietnam and then just work more on creation of new dishes because uh, there are some dishes that I feel like okay I got this nail this and now I want to push myself further see cool. what else I can create and do you have any future plans or is it too early for like scaling up or opening a proper restaurant not a closed door restaurant anything like that yeah so right now i i'm just trying to take things slowly one step mm. at a time and yeah and not yeah fair enough now i'm very excited to try the huevos rancheros <laughs> because one i love the pun and i do love huevos rancheros and so i'm excited to try that that's going to be a good one um now at the beginning of the episode i said that i was going to mispronounce your name and uh, i've not said your name again since then but when you listen back to this episode, you'll realize that you mispronounced your own name about five times as well. <laughs> because I love it, how you call me out on mispronouncing my own name. <laughs> because, because what it was. So do you want to explain about the pronunciation of your name? And I'll tell you why you pronounced it wrong. Was because you were talking about your sister saying it. Um, and then you went back to the Americanized version. Of okay, the so my whole life I grew up in America, right? And so... To make pronunciation easier for everyone, I always went by Tam. Because it sounds enough like Pam or Tammy, whatever. So I'm always Tam Lee. And then moving to Vietnam, I thought like, man, this is my chance. People know how to pronounce my name here. And like, I should just own my name, own my identity. I'm going to go by Min Tham, which is like my middle and first name. So Tham um, instead of Tam. And so it's hard because I've only made this decision a few months ago. And I've spent like 29 years of my life going by Tam, so I always slip back and this min thumb thing is not going as well as I thought it would go. <laughs> so I'm making an effort to say thumb, thumb. <laughs> and then you were telling your stories and you're like, my sister said Tam. <laughs> you <laughs> caught <up>. me. <laughs> so to finish off, uh, again, massive thank you to Brendan Coleman for uh, suggesting a very interesting guest. Thank you very much for joining me, Min Thumb. You got it. <laughs> Nailed it, <laughs> And uh, I think now we should go and eat some uh, Vietnamese food for lunch. Yes. Sounds good. Yes, and good. thank you again for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that episode. <laughs> So I'm still here with Tham. Uh, Tham. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna say our, name, our own name properly. We're eating right now uh, mini bansio in the market. Just uh, cha funyan. Do you want to tell us a bit about the food that we're eating? Yeah. So unlike the bansio that we're used to in the south, which is a larger like if you go to bansio bomi sao a or bansio 46a. 
you'll see that it's much larger, more similar to an Indian dosa in its size and it's yellow. And but the kind we're eating is more from the central region. It's about the size of, I guess, the palm of your hand and folded over. And it doesn't, and it's not yellow because it doesn't use turmeric, which is more indicative of central part of it all. So just interesting regional variations. And how would you rate this uh, mini bensio? Mm, it's pretty good. It's good enough to where I'm ignoring the fact that this shrimp still has a skin on. <laughs> and do you want to ask the woman where, where she's from and how, how she makes this? Because you can communicate with her in Vietnamese. I'm taking advantage of this because I just come here like a, a ignorant Westerner. Long lamb. Em là người miền Trung hay ông xã ông xã Oh, ông xã của. okay, okay, okay. Her husband is from Nha Trang, which is why she makes bánh xèo in this central style. Alright, we just wanted to give a little bit of an update and the food is delicious. Thanks for listening to another episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Saigon podcast. Massive thank you to Thumb for a thoroughly entertaining and interesting interview, which you can tell by the length being a bit longer than your usual episode, but um, I really thought that uh, it was worth listening to the full amount. So thank you, Tom, and always thank you to Lewis Wright for composing the theme music for 7 Million Bikes and to Len Nguyen for uh, helping design the cover art that you can find on our Facebook page and uh, our website and everywhere that you can find the podcast, which if you do want to listen to more, you can use the website 7millionbikes.com. You can use Google, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere these days that you can find uh, podcasts. So... Hope you're enjoying the show. Thanks for listening. Leave any feedback if you can on Facebook or Apple Podcasts. Great to hear what you think about the show. And I hope you can tune in for further episodes. Thanks very much. hope you enjoyed this episode if you're like me you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public wi-fi this opens you up to digital snoopers it's a massive problem it can be your internet service provider or you know who looking at what you do online or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data these days it is vital that you keep your data safe NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease. And I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, 
nordvpn.com forward slash smb. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash smb. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers. Cheers.